Well, we are not just launching a new congregation today as a community of faith, but we are launching into a new expositional study. As we do at Fellowship, we teach books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are starting the Gospel of Mark today. Now, my purpose today, I want you to know, I want to set expectations that it's preparatory. What I'm going to do today, I'm just laying some foundations that we'll build upon. Y'all will we'll be in this book with some breaks all the way through next, you know, May, June, probably. But I'm, I'm, I'm preparing us. It's an introduction. And what I want to do is give us a big picture of Mark. Always good to start with the big picture of a book that we understand the whole before we look at the parts. And then I want us to consider briefly how he begins his account in, uh, on the life of Jesus. I'm going to do three things today, okay? I'm going to answer the question, why? Why Mark? Uh, secondly, I'm going to give that big picture overview. So why Mark and then overview. 30,000 feet, you're going to have a visual look at this gospel. And then the third thing I'm going to do is a brief introduction, cursory at best, but we will look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Everybody with me? So answering the question, why? Uh, we're going to look at an overview, understand the whole, and then we will introduce the book as Mark introduces it in a rather strange way in verses one through eight. If you leave here after, after this message and this morning with two things, a, a, even just a smidgen of anticipation, a smidgen of, I can't wait to read this book, that's great, but it also needs to be coupled with a sober trepidation. In other words, leaving here going, uh-oh, we're reading this book. Now, if we feel that, I think we will have heard what God wants for us today. Why Mark? Well, a number of reasons, certainly, but I want to pick upon one and offer it to you. About two years ago, I read Hampton Side's historic uh, novel uh, called Kingdom of Ice. I don't know if any of you may have read this. It is the uh, recounting of the voyage of the USS Jeanette. It was uh, captained by George DeLong, uh, it departed uh, San Francisco Bay on July 8th, 1879, and it was America's attempt to reach the North Pole, be first to get to the North Pole, the, the, the Arctic. We're talking about the top of the world here. Now, DeLong spent five years preparing for this, five years getting ready for the expedition. And of course, one of the main things that he spent you know, was concerned about was, you know, what map am I going to use to get there? Well, there's a German cartographer, uh, August Peterman, and uh, Peterman had a, had a theory uh, that there was a warm Gulf current that flowed up through the Bering Sea and actually melted or softened, so to speak, the, the, the ring of ice that was around the Arctic and that there was a path through there that, uh, that sailors could sail to the North Pole and it would open into, here's what they thought, a polar sea. You know, they don't have uh, satellite images. No one's been there. They don't know that. He envisioned that there was a sea up there that you would open into at the top of the world. Well, within uh, you know, months of sailing, uh, they were trapped in ice. Uh, DeLong, of course, based his expedition on Peterman's maps. Y'all, they remained trapped in that ice for two years. This is the bulk of the story. Two years in this, <laughs> going nowhere, trapped in ice. Y'all, I would read this at night 
undercovers and I would get cold reading the book. It's the truth. Um, now the, the hole was finally punctured by the ice after some two years and they had to abandon the ship as it sank. And what began as this expedition of great discovery, you know what it becomes is this harrowing struggle of survival. And that's certainly the, the biggest part of the book. They expected, and I just want what you think about. It. They expected a thermometric gateway. That's the name Peterman gave it. A thermometric gateway to the polar sea. What they found was a kingdom of ice. Sides writes this. When the ice locked them in, the team had to shed its organizing ideas in all their unfounded romance and replace them with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is, end quote. Why, Mark? Because I suspect that a lot of us have expectations, preconceived notions about who Jesus is and what he said. I'm talking about us as Christians that have kind of, it's like barnacles attached to our faith over time and pretty soon we kind of have these notions of what Jesus really said and what he meant by what he said that quite frankly aren't true. It could be something that you just kind of adapt over time. I mean, you're in the church. You know, you could be in the church, you could be out of the church and these ideas attach themselves to us. I'll say it this way. It's like your journey of faith takes off and I don't know, year two, year 28, year 30, you find yourself stuck in the ice. I hear people say that I'm spiritually stuck. Spiritually, and life sticks you. And you may ask, Lord, what's going on? And you may have said this, I certainly have. Christian life's not working for me. Anybody ever, don't raise your hand. Anybody ever thought that? This isn't work, you know? <laughs> it's not working. And I, I, I certainly have. Mark, more so than any of the other gospel accounts, stops our expedition of life and faith, requires us to shed the barnacles and shed our organizing ideas, romanticize of who we think Jesus is and what we think it means to follow him and replace them, can I borrow these words, with a reckoning of who Jesus truly is and what it means for our lives, which is why as we move through this series, following the servant king, how Jesus's life redefines our own. We are not studying Mark to learn about Jesus and know more about him. We study it that we might become more like him, that our lives might be transformed, redefined by Jesus as he truly is and by what he truly said. Well, that's why. There are other reasons, but that's ours. How about an overview? I mean, when we start a book study, it's really good to see the whole before you study the parts. Y'all, I could do no better than to show you this five-minute video. It's from The Bible Project. You may wanna write this down. These guys are doing fantastic work. But it's a five-minute video. It's an overview of Mark. This is, this is what we need. And I want you to be thinking about two things as you watch this, okay? I want you to be thinking about how Mark organizes his material. That's a big deal. And secondly, I want you to be thinking about the challenge 
that Jesus' life posed to the disciples and those who saw him. Think about the the challenge uh, that it posed to them that, quite frankly, they never got over. Watch this with, with me. Here's an overview of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there, because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic king, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant, or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus's life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten 
and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? He wasn't what they expected. Their map said thermometric gateway. (laughs) And they missed him. I want you to think about something for a moment. Uh, Three and a half years, the disciples eat, sleep, travel, drink. You know, they watch him heal. They get to ask questions. They get their questions answered. And at the end of it, we have to say, they didn't get it. Clearly, it was possible in this day, in that day, to be with Jesus like that and miss Jesus. Here's what I want you to think about for a moment. Is that possible today? Is it possible to teach in the learning center, lead a small group, be a part of a worship team, be in a class, preach a message, and miss Jesus? Yeah. Absolutely. We're going to have to answer that question individually over and over and over and over as we go through Mark's gospel. Am I missing him? (laughs) That's not what I thought he meant. That's not who I thought he was. Well, we've answered the question, why Mark? We've got an overview. That is a fantastic overview. Let's look at how Mark begins. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter one, verses one through eight. Again, cursory. There's so much more we could say here, but for time I won't because we will be coming back to some of these themes over and over and over. A few comments about the uniqueness of Mark. Let me set the stage this way. Mark's writing to Roman Christians. This is the first gospel account. The other, Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark. So this is the first written account of Jesus' life that the church receives to Roman Christians who, by the way, have been accused of burning Rome. Anybody knows their history here? It's 64 AD, uh, 80% of Rome burns. 80% of the city burned. Uh, Historians think Nero started it, which when you understand this man, you get it. He started it because he wanted a building project. 
uh, people weren't up in arms. So who did Nero blame for the burning of Rome? Who did he blame? Anybody? He blamed these non-religious Christians. And so this is the time when Christians literally, you hear this all the time, burned at the stake. They were dipped in tar. Let's dip them in some gasoline. Let's stick them up on poles and let's light the city. Let's clothe them in animal hides and turn feral dogs loose on it. This is what he did. Let's set them in the Colosseum and watch lions eat them. This is what it meant to be a Christian in Rome and Mark's gospel is going to these Roman Christians. He writes with an unusual sense of urgency, you all. If you read Mark, take you an hour and a half, you'll feel like you've been beaten up on a flight with nothing but turbulence. It's just like he moves here, there, here and there, constant movement. He uses uh, the Greek word that is translated immediately, or maybe it's in your Bible, steadfast. He uses it 42 times, immediately, immediately, immediately. It's like, slow down, immediately, 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 42 times. The rest of the New Testament uses that word 12 times. Mark is more concerned with the actions of Jesus than he is with his words. And at the end of Mark, you know what you're faced with? A person, not a proposition, not a philosophy, but a man. Now he begins with this urgency. We'll see it as we pick it up, verses one through eight. He is, by the way, when you see this word that he's preaching, it's proclaiming and it it carries this idea. He's yelling loudly with a lot of emotion in the wilderness. And he's yelling. It's just coming from deep within him as he's in the wilderness. This is how, boom, Mark begins his account. Follow along in your Bibles. God's word to us today. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching, yelling loudly, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. The original readers would read that and see, they, they, they get things that we may not, but it's like this. They would read that and they would know who, that's it. They would know who that is. It's like this if I said, who, you know, who, who in our history, who, wore, who do we think of when I say wore the coonskin cap? Who do you think of? You know, it's funny. I said, Daniel Boone, and someone came up to me and said, you, you can say Daniel Boone. It's Davy Crockett to me, you know? So Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, whichever one. But we get it, right? Well, when they read that, they went, Elijah. He's Elijah. That's what they would feel, see in the text. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When we're reading Mark, very important to keep this in mind. We, the readers, know things that the characters in the story don't get right away. And in fact, don't get all the way even through the whole thing. We know right out of the bat, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christo, Messiah, the son of God, God, man. We know that, boom, uh, they don't. Have you ever read the gospels and got frustrated at the disciples? I have in my worst moments. You know, you, you go, 
Hello, he just did that. You just saw him raise the dead. Why aren't you following him? Just do what he says. This guy's, a, I've, I've certainly done that. Maybe you have. I think there's a word of caution for us. David Garland says this. The prologue briefly lets the reader in on what are otherwise secrets that will remain hidden to various degrees to all of the characters in the drama that follows. Because we who read know who Jesus is, our failure to follow and obey makes us more culpable than the characters in the story, end quote. Ouch. And thank you. A good reminder. The quote is from Malachi and Isaiah. He just mentions Isaiah over 500 years earlier. Uh, They had prophesied and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't just show up. No, he will be preceded by a forerunner who prepares the way. The readers of this would look at this and go, this makes total sense. I mean, in our world, dignitaries don't just show, the president doesn't just show up. The emperor doesn't just show up. No, there's always a forerunner that comes, make sure everything's in order when Messiah comes. So you see, isn't it beautiful that, that God, even as he's revealing redemption, he's using the cultural norms that they would get to announce the coming of Messiah. Uh, last October, I, I've mentioned this before, but I had a chance to go on a trip to Bolivia with Greg Ham and some other men, and we were on a hunting, hunting trip, and, but it was also a trip with Compassion International, and uh, we were in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. We were leaving Santa Cruz. We're heading out into the country, and before we got out in the country, you got out in kind of the, what I'd call the suburbs. It's not like our suburbs, but just smaller shops and homes and whatnot. And as we're driving along, I'm sitting in the right-hand side of this van. And y'all, as we're, I'm on the right-hand side of this van. I look out, and we're looking all this on this, this side. There is a, this is the only way I can describe it, a concrete runway that's it's going for miles. It just keeps going. It's probably 50 yards across. It's fenced in and it just keeps going and going and going. And there's no one in there. It's like houses, shops on each side of it. The city's all around and this thing's running through the middle. You could land a 747 on this thing. And so as we go, we're going, we're going, it just keeps going. We're like, what is that? Well, it turns out that in July of last year, the Pope visited Bolivia and they built this run. It wasn't for the plane. It was just for him to drive down. That's all it was just for him to drive down and for the crowds to come around and gather. He, you know, they prepared the way for the Pope. There's a British saying that wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. It's, and it's true. You know, they get it, they get it totally ready. Now John's preparatory work is not painting or filling in potholes. We get a little confused here. Let's pay attention to what the text is telling us. Has nothing to do with the roads per se, has everything to do with what? With their hearts. (laughs) Your hearts are in no spiritual condition to receive Messiah. If John makes anything clear in the opening, it's this. Your, Your problem's not Rome. Your problem's your heart. Your problem's sin. And this is the issue Messiah comes 
to resolve. We want to be really careful how we take these words, baptism, forgiveness of sin. Um, Kenneth Wiest helps us here. He writes, we must be careful to note that the baptism of which we are now speaking is not Christian baptism. Don't read this and go, hey, you get baptized for forgiveness of sin. This is not Christian baptism. It is a baptism connected with Israel to Jewish baptism and its acceptance of Messiah, end quote. You with me? In the Old Testament, when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they would, they would have this ritual cleansing. Uh, the, the, there were mikvah baths, and they're still there today when you're in, in Jerusalem, around the temple where before the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, he would bathe himself, dip himself in these waters, you see. The priests would dip themselves. So this idea of baptizo is, is familiar to them, but this is not Christian baptism. Hebert writes in a helpful way, the baptism of repentance is a baptism characterized by repentance. His baptism, John the Baptist, was not intended to induce repentance, but rather was administered to those who were repentant. You remember in Matthew, Jesus said to the religious leaders, he didn't baptize them because they had no fruits of repentance. You're not getting baptized because you're not repentant, you see. Repentance, Hebert continues, is more than grief or regret for sin. It is a deep change of mind, an altered attitude towards sin, which has its proper fruit in a deliberate change of conduct for the better. Metanoia, repentance. It is you're going in one direction and you have a change of mind and attitude that's reflected in your literal active change of direction. Change of mind, change of behavior, repentance. John is preparing Israel for Messiah. And it's as if he looks at them, and I'm paraphrasing here, and he says, hey, Israel, Jews, you who think that you're right with God, you're not. You're rebellious. You're disobedient. Repent. And in that baptism, you see, they were identifying themselves as repentant Israel in need of forgiveness and a savior. They were prepared now for Messiah as he came. The baptism did not forgive sin. It signified their repentance. And it speaks, I think, to our own preparation for Messiah. And you say, well, I've, I've, I've trusted Christ. I don't have to prepare for him anymore. Well, let me beg to differ for a moment. We're here to grow up and mature in Christ, to be more Christ-like, for him to be, transform us from within. And there's a sense of preparation always for us, and even a sense, I believe, of repentance. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that you could or have ever lived a day without sinning? You know, when I said this last service, what dawned on me is the only thing I can think of is if you were under anesthesia, maybe. <laughs> but honestly, you know, that stuff can make you think weird things and say weird things. So maybe not even then. So if you go, and I believe this, if you go, well, I can't live a day without sinning. Well, let me ask you this then. Then can, can you live a day without repenting? I, I can live weeks without repenting. Now, what does that tell me? 
See, I'm not, don't, don't go here, don't go paranoid on me like, like, oh my gosh, are you saying that I need to make, I need to keep track of every sin, every time I th- have a thought, I need to keep track of that. Don't go there because repentance is not like the whack-a-mole, you know, you did that, you did that, and you're just going on, on and on. That's not what the spirit does. No, no, no. See, repentance is a change of mind and a change of behavior, and repentance is tied that I'm not right with God. I've had a bad attitude. I had a wrong thought. I, I chose, I didn't choose well, and so the spirit convicts us and we have a change of mind that results in a change of heart. And what does that change do? It's not like to whack us like the whack-a-mole. It's to say, I need Jesus, only Jesus, Jesus, only, you know what? I need Jesus in the middle of your day. You know, I need Jesus. You think you could say that too much? I don't think so. And so it's to live with an awareness that I need Christ. And I'm aware of that because I sin. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus. Well, John makes clear that the one coming after him is greater than him. It's a massive difference, by the way. Do you know slaves in that day? It, 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 was, it was beneath a slave to untie the sandal, the, the thing you know you tie your sandal, hold your foot on, hold on your foot. It was beneath a slave. In other words, you're a slave, don't untie someone's sandal. It's beneath a slave. But John goes under the slave. I'm not even worthy to tie, untie the, the, his, his sandal. Just, geez, geez, the one coming is so much greater than I. And then John goes as far as he can by recognizing his baptism is a water baptism. It's ceremonial, symbolic. It's an outward washing, so to speak. It's temporary. But the one that's coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. All the promises of the Old Testament whew, come into this. Pentecost, being indwelt by the Spirit. A new heart that God gives us, you see, all wrapped up in this. By the way, Who's the only one who can give the spirit or who, who can direct, who, who's the only one who can direct the spirit? Mm, God. <laughs> so the one coming, you see, it's hint, 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 hint. He's God. He's the very son of God. And the baptism of the spirit is not outward and ceremonial. It's inward and it's transformational. Okay, there you go. There's our question answered. There's our overview. And there is our first few verses introducing the gospel of Mark, I'm gonna leave you with a question. And I want you to just close your Bibles and think with me for a moment. It's not a question you can fill in the blank and it's not a question you can fill in the bubble like you're taking the ACT or something. I do think how you answer this question gets at the question I asked earlier about, is it possible to be with Jesus, talk about Jesus, act like I know Jesus and all that and actually miss Jesus? And I do think that is possible. And I think answering this question gets at at some level, how that happens. I want you to look behind me at two columns on the screen. And I want you to answer this question as you read those words. Imagine each column is a life and you get to choose one. You only get to choose one. Which one would you choose? I mean, this is a (laughs) no-brainer. Let's be honest, be honest. Uh, Hello. (laughs) I think think I'll take the one on the left, you know? I'll tell you this, it was a no-brainer for the Jews and they... Their expectation was a Messiah that would come and give them the left column. You see, they've been living under the right column for decades, centuries under Rome. 
you know, their map said thermometric gateway. <laughs> ah, we've got it, you know, Messiah. Most Jews and Gentiles are still looking for the thermometric gateway to the polar sea. It doesn't exist. No, uh, Mark is showing the reader, okay, that's you and me, that Jesus chose the right column. Here's the good news. You know, the, the gospel, the good news. He chose it for us. He chose it for me and you. You know, think about the right column. You can think about it different ways, but maybe you think about it as, as the consequences of sin, the wages of sin. This is what sin earned. Jesus says, I'll take it all, and he took it all upon himself. He paid our debt so we would not have to, Okay? Here's what I don't want you to miss. Uh, that right column is reckoning the Christian life as it truly is. Now, I'm gonna be real careful here. To follow Jesus in this life, according to Mark, is not just to believe that he lived that right column and paid the penalty for us. It's to choose the right column for yourself. I want to be careful in this way. I am not talking about your justification before God. Oh, Lord, are you saying that we've got to live, we've got to choose and live that way and do that so that we can go to heaven? No, Jesus chose it and lived it for us and bore the penalty for our sins. And therefore, we are in Christ when we trust him. We are justified, declared righteous. Our eternity is secure. But men and women, you're still here on earth. And... Our time on earth is meant to be a time where we mature in the faith. We grow in Christ's likeness. How do we grow in Christ's likeness? Mark says we choose to live and follow the life Jesus lived. That's, uh, that's hard news, <laughs> but that's reckoning sanctification as it truly is. Think about it, Christ, because now we've trusted Christ, and again, Christ chose that path, but he died and rose from the grave. Therefore, the spirit lives in us, the power of the resurrection in us. Therefore, we can choose that path knowing it's not the end. No, it's not the end. What is it? Mark's gonna tell us, lose your life to gain it. In weakness, there's power. Suffering precedes glory. The least, oh, the least is the greatest. Submit under authority to influence. Die in order to live. You see? And we walk that path in Christ. I, I, I've said this last time, so I'll say it again. You know, I don't want you to walk out of here just like totally bummed out, like, ooh. I want you to walk out of here going, we choose the left column in Christ. It is the path. Choose the right, it's the path to the left in Christ. Now, that is our eternal future. 
but eternal life begins now. So it's not like, you know, we choose this right path and like life's a total bummer. This is yucky. No, but we experience the, we experience the left column in part. It's not in the fullness, y'all, not in this world, but in part and truly and really. And, and, and Christ said the abundant life, this is the abundant life. But listen, the fullness and finality of that abundance on that left column is our eternal future. But it's real today. And in this way, we become more and more like Christ. Well, you know, that's the, I hope you're anticipating reading the book, but I also hope too, hmm, you take a deep breath and go, I've got a bit of trepidation if that's where we're going. It's appropriate because this is life according to Christ as he truly is. Let's stand together. I'm gonna send you out and I've given us enough time that we don't need to rush to the car or rush out of here. We got a little few moments. I wanna pray this benediction over you. This is the key verse of Mark. May we experience it even as we study this account of the life of Christ. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May we know that truth in our own lives. Uh, before I dismiss you, I'm gonna ask you to turn and greet someone nearby. And then whoever you greet, when you turn to them, I want you to say, hey, let's walk out to the connection point. No, I'm not gonna make you do that. <laughs> like, come on, man, go with me. No, I do want you though to turn, greet someone nearby and, to, and, and do uh, if, if you need to stop by that connection point and together, let's get connected. Greet someone nearby. Thank you.